0: Cold one Tuesday I'm looking tired and feeling quite sick I felt like there was something missing in my day-to-day life so I quickly opened the wardrobe pulled out some jeans and a t-shirt that seemed stars as I'm rubbing my eyes, and I felt like there were two days missing as I focused on the time. Then I made my way to the kitchen, but I had to stop from the shock of what I found, a room full of all of my friends all dancing round and round. And I thought, hello, new shoes, bye-bye and blues. Hey, I put some new shoes on, and suddenly everything Some new shoes on, and everybody's smiling. It's so. do
1: Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijay Nathan, and with us today is um, Jessica Hines the Meditative Writing, our co-host. Welcome. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome. So, um, also our guest today is Jacques a um, uh, leadership consultant. Welcome, Jacques.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. So, we're going to be talking a little bit about leadership and the inner work needed for leadership and a lot of the corollary veins uh, and arteries that go out of leadership and team building and all this kind of stuff. So why don't you tell us like, what is the, uh, what is the core? What tell us first a little bit about your, yourself and your experience with leadership development. So how long have you been doing that? 12 years or something? Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. So I started, um, <clears throat> really doing yeah about 12 years ago and just working in, you know, a lot of companies have learning and development groups in them and I've worked for bigger organizations. And when those teams are in house, um, they, they often will then start to measure and understand, okay, what's going on with the company's strategy. Um, and are our people set up for success in order to deliver that strategy? What are the capabilities and skills that they need? So you start around maybe harder skills and then you start to realize that a lot of things start to connect to someone's mindsets, their behaviors, their preferences. And from there you get into assessment work and other areas. And, um, so I started off just sort of setting up classrooms and just learning the actual mechanics and operations of learning and development. And then over the years, you graduate into writing the content, understanding the needs. And then ultimately, I'm at a point where I'm both writing it, creating it, and then I'm the teacher in the front of the room is, who's delivering a lot of those sessions. And that's really where you kind of learn and see what's going on with with people and, and what connects and what really drives behavior change.
1: Mm-hmm. There's so much written about leadership and about the problems with teams, so what is kind of your take on what is your best advice for generally speaking for teams and leaders to overcome some of the pathologies in teams or maybe address some of the or what are the common pathologies you encounter? Or,
2: yeah, you, you know, I think um, with leadership, I find that the teams that are the most successful are the ones that are not as hierarchical, where the teams tend to have more of a flat architecture. The leader gives the team members that work for them autonomy and trust and allow them to understand um, what their strengths are, have some responsibilities, but hold them accountable at the same time. So mm. these are the leaders that have quote unquote, the open door policies, the leaders that make you feel like you are, their equal and that you're not always just reporting up into them. Mm. That then empowers people to start to express themselves, share their ideas. And those teams tend to have more transparency and with that comes higher performance. So that's something I see over and over again is when you open a leadership book and it talks about great leadership, it's it's you often hear the same things over and over again. Mm. And you hear those things for a reason, is that they do truly work. When people feel empowered, they tend to perform better and be more loyal and engaged. Mm.
3: What do you feel like uh, is the most... I mean, I, I do think that leadership is something that I think everyone thinks they know a lot about because we hear yeah. a lot about it. Right. Yeah. There's there's like a new book every five days. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I'm just so interested in, like, what's the most misunderstood or what do you think right now is like, what's the thing that's going around about leadership that you feel like might be really damaging or not helpful? That might be sort of a a, a popular view or or something that you've encountered recently that you would like to debunk
2: you know i i've thought about this i think it's this idea that leaders are born and that they can't be made um that some people are natural born leaders oh he's a natural born leader she's a natural (laughs) born leader there's nothing that's further from the truth it's similar to people saying i'm not creative Mm -hmm. when in fact everyone is creative you're either blue sky or you are connect the dots who prefer structure but we all have this continuum of creativity that we fit along that some way, shape or form. And leadership's the same way. Leadership comes from experience. It comes from working and getting out there and ultimately, of course, being assigned people to lead. And like any journey, you tend to have to fail and learn and have these moments where ultimately you can rise up and realize who I am as a person and who I am as a leader. But I think the misconception to answer your question is that I either am a leader or I'm not a leader or I can or can't do this. And the idea is if you're open to finding your style, your authentic style of leadership, it is waiting for you to be found.
3: Yeah. No, that's awesome. I, I'm a firm believer of the, you know, open mindset and practice. And it's true. Like no one comes out of the womb, you know, with a <laughs> clipboard and a, yeah. a, a hat just ready yeah. to to lead Um, And absolutely about creativity. One of my favorite studies talks about how, you know, 98% of kids uh, test as creative geniuses and about 13% of adults, which goes to show that, you know, creativity is something that oftentimes gets beaten out of us by our schooling or our system or our lives. But that if you practice it and you maintain it, you know, like everyone has the capacity to be heavily creative. And it's good to hear that. It's there for leadership as well.
2: Yeah. yeah, you know, you you hit on something very interesting. Is this idea of when we're children, we have this um, possibility and this excitement and this optimism, and then as we get become adults, maybe we live for a while, our dreams get smaller, and maybe we get a little bit more pessimistic, or or just you could say even consider ourselves realists or something. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the theory around leadership is to tap back into the possibility of when you were a kid and everything felt possible mm. and you were, you had the joy and the unbounded sort of creativity and hope that kids have. And I think that's why we often get so much energy being around children, whether they be yours or, you know, hanging out with your cousins or your family or whatever um, kids make us feel good because they have so much natural joy. And, you know, some of the leaders that um, I've seen speaker or, or that that I've sort of met with talk about tapping into that in company culture and not feeling so bogged down with the stress um, of high performance, Mm -hmm. but finding that ability to step outside of the day-to-day, look at the big picture, be grateful and celebrate, you know, really often how fortunate a lot of us are, but how do we find that childhood joy? Because that's where creative possibility comes from often and those breakthrough innovations that companies are looking for.
3: It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it before, but now um, I think all three of us have a little bit of an entrepreneurial experience. And I was just realizing that, you know, I've been a a founder in many in multiple companies and a co-founder and recently having launched my own company. And I just remembered, I was like, wow, like when I was a co-founder or, or when I wasn't the leader, I always had the biggest ideas and I was always super excited and I always had like this flood of things I would bring to the table. And then I realized that when I started and I was the sole person leading my company, I got much more conservative and safety and stability became so much more important. And I think that a lot of people are scared to like go out and become like, a entrepreneurs or be the, the only person in charge of a creative project. Mm. Um, And so what advice might you have to maintain that, you know, big thinking and excitement and wildness, even when that maybe that fear of instability comes in when you become the leader of a group or an organization?
2: Well, if you'll let me, let me put this back on you for a second oh, and, no. and ask you why you shifted when you suddenly became the entrepreneur and let's just say the boss or Mm -hmm. the leader, what happened in your mind that made you maybe a bit more buttoned up and a little more serious where when you were not the one in charge, maybe you felt more free?
3: I, For the transition that I made, I knew that even if I didn't have a good day, there I had a team underneath me that I knew that felt like a safety net. And so it felt like I could take chances because – And then when I went out on my own, since I was the only person, I was like, oh, wow, I can't have a bad day. I was like, I can't, you know, there's no one behind me to catch me if I fall. And so I think that, you know, led to me just making much more conservative choices.
2: Did you feel more accountable for the livelihood of the people that work for you and some of the weight of, gosh, they are, they're giving their career to me or maybe I'm in charge of their income or something like that and the success of the company, et cetera?
3: I mean, I've, for the people that I work with, like I, I just know that I can always deliver for them. I think it's harder for me to, like I know I can always show up for the people that I work with. Like absolutely, it doesn't matter how little sleep, doesn't matter what happens if, you know. um, I think when you, stepping out on my own, I did realize that I might not, uh, have the same amount of dedication for taking care of myself and making sure i'm okay mm. um, as i do for like my clients and the mm. writers that i mentor um i am always my best self for them and
2: and so well it's like yeah. that that old saying putting the oxygen mask on yourself first before yeah. helping oh others. yeah
3: i have to say that yeah. to myself constantly yeah <laughs>
2: Well, it's, you could say the same thing happens to parents. You know, sometimes they, they give everything to their children and, and sometimes they, whether it be physically or emotionally or mentally struggle because they're so dedicated to being selfless for their kids. And I think leaders and bosses take pride maybe as this badge of honor of, of giving everything they can to the job or to their team but your team's also looking up to you and looking as looking at you as a role model. So if you're making and taking the mm-hmm. the balance for yourself, for example, if you're working till 9 p.m., everyone on your team's probably gonna feel the pressure to do the same thing. But if you say, guys, it's five o'clock or it's six o'clock, I know it's New York City. So if it's six o'clock, I'm leaving and I expect all of you to leave too. And you set yeah. that expectation you can change sort of the conditions and the culture of that team. Cause then you give everyone the balance because we, the, the misconception on stress is that stress is a bad thing, but if you can stress, but then build in the recovery time, stress is where, where the growth happens, right? Mm -hmm. And suddenly my comfort zone gets that much bigger. Um, and giving yourself first permission as a leader, but also then giving your team that same permission, the uh, entire culture of your of your not only your main team but your organization can can change tremendously through those permissions
3: that's that's great i I know the leading by example absolutely because especially with like health things for writers writers artistic health is extraordinarily important and under and not t- talked about a lot we talk about mental and physical health but artistic health is something that I'm always trying to make sure that I demonstrate but it's interesting that you talk about the role of the team with leadership and, and I'm wondering, you know, there's probably a lot of people listening who are the uh, followers in a team and, or maybe struggling with the leaders that Mm -hmm. are leading them. And as someone Mm who has often been quite frustrated with um, some of the leaders that I've had, is there any, like, what's the best approach when you're in a situation where like, you know, change needs to happen or something's not working for the group, but you're not the leader. Like how, how would we approach that?
2: That's a good question. I I know that some cultures and companies are more open to ideas and sharing than others are. Um, Sometimes there may not be a formal mechanism in place to create a feedback with your, with your leader. But my, my suggestion would be to have the courage to, in fact, create one. And if feedback is delivered in a constructive way, and it's not something where you're looking to necessarily criticize but make things better and you you are aware of your manager's tendencies for example you know how your manager likes to meet so if your manager is someone who appreciates a formal status and maybe doesn't so much look for informal check-ins at like the water cooler or you know walking down the hallway putting time on that manager's calendar for example and going through whatever the business you have to go through but then leaving time at that the end of that agenda to just say i have some ideas where i think not just from a personal perspective but what might help overall team performance improve this is x y and z suggestions would you be open to implementing those because this is sort of the roi or these are the these are the ways in which i think we could see an improvement not only in whether it be work-life balance morale you know performance or just simply making more money for the company if you create what what I would call the business case for something and couch it in a way that speaks to the way that leader responds, then you'll have more success than maybe coming at it in a way that the leader might shut down or get defensive. Ooh. So it com- some of it comes from I've worked with this person long enough to know what they respond to and then – massaging the message in a way that it will click for them. Like you might a partner in your personal life, you know, maybe how to get through to them. You also know how to piss them off, you know? So you kind of learn the triggers of the person you work for. And, but it does take a little nudge, a little bit of courage, but it can go, it can go a long way if you do it the right way.
1: It seems to me that what this speaks to is the trust that's needed to be built. Uh, and also the structures that would encourage people to feel trust and, and, you know, understand that they can speak their mind, but in an appropriate way. But, um, they have a structure in which to do that. Yeah, so, yeah, and also the play as well it seems to be a theme that seems to be running through that. Um, you know, being feeling comfortable and confident to, um, you know, uh, not just be like drudging along, but also you know having that recovery time, mental recovery time to engage in play, playful, um, you know, in your in your work, mm-hmm. the work play
2: balance, you know. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I I I recognize that some companies don't have um, a culture where you can see opportunities to do this. There's just some environments that just are maybe too toxic or it just seems hopeless. But I think you have to go to a personal level and say, what do I need to do? What are the things I need to try before I might say, walk away from a job or maybe start looking externally for my next Mm -hmm. opportunity? Uh, You know, speaking for myself, I like to sort of, Ensure that when I'm walking away, I have ruled out everything internally that I could try to maybe improve the situation, improve my engagement and the way I'm feeling about my role or try to improve the performance of the, te- excuse me, of the team. If I think that I've done everything I can do, then maybe it's time to to ultimately move forward. But there's a lot you can do and try. Um, it depends on the formal, maybe the, the mechanisms that that company has. Like I know some people have performance reviews. There's also just ways of saying, when does our team naturally get together and discuss business? These are ways that you can introduce new ideas to the team. Like, hey, instead of just sitting down and jumping into the agenda, is there maybe a five minute or two minute sort of icebreaker or something we can try? Um, Some of the other things that we've implemented that work are um, checking in with everyone. So you come into a a team meeting, you're sitting around a table. How's everyone doing? Everyone kind of goes around the room and just says, what's on their mind right now? It might be uh, i just had a crappy morning i spilled coffee all over my pants i'm not really present right now i might need a few minutes or somebody might um might say you know i just got off a really tough conference call or i'm in a great mood you know and and just by kind of knowing where everyone's at at the top of a conversation can change the meeting and ultimately higher performing teams get to know each other at a particular level i'm not saying you all have to be best friends but people tend to work harder for one another and care when you care for those people a little bit more than just the deliverables but like human to human how's everyone doing all right now let's jump in but we give those 5 minutes as a leader it shows that you care about everyone's doing at a human level and then I, I, it changes the whole rest of that that um meeting or whatever it might be yeah people tend to throw on the term
1: professionalism uh you know they say you know I'm professional this is not personal or they use terms like that. Um, and the word professional seems to, when they when said in that context, seem to carry with it a little toxicity. So can you address, like, professionalism, what you think about that, and, and as opposed to the uh, what you were saying just now about um, getting to know people and caring about them? But they, people seem to think, this is my job. You know, I hear that a lot. Like, it's just my job, and I'm coming here to do my work. And I don't know. What do you think about that attitude or that perspective?
2: I, I guess I would – every company culture is different, but – um, I guess I would say that it's, it's more around, is that a sustainable approach for you? How does that feel coming out of your mouth when you say, I'm here to do my job? If you, if that works for you, then, then continue. It's always checking in with yourself mm. and saying, is this level of professionalism execution, getting my job done, showing up, putting my head down, getting my work done, and then leaving at the end of the day. Like I'm one of these people who works to live mm. and that's all I need from my job. That's that's perfectly great. It's it's just checking in with yourself. So that's how I would answer that one thing. But I would also argue that all of us tend to have longer tenure with organizations and more loyalty to organizations and feel more fulfilled. One, when that company's tapping into our strengths and the things that we care about and enjoy the most. When when a company, one, takes the time to understand what those things are and then works with you within reason to customize and and give you projects and things to work on that access those passions of yours. That's a whole nother level of engagement where you can really start to soar as a professional. And leaders who are strong leaders identify and care about understanding what those things are. And then they will, whether it be through formal assessments and giving your team maybe diagnostics to take where they kind of learn, okay, God, my team has all these talents I wasn't aware of. How can I use this? One, to team build or, or to drive projects and things like that. Um, so there's things that you can do as an individual to understand who you are and what you care about. And then ultimately, what do I need to be successful and feel engaged in my job? And that kind of goes a little bit deeper than just being a professional Mm. and, and showing up doing my job and leaving. There's nothing wrong with that, but I, I find a lot of us need a little bit more to tap into the passion and the values that are beneath the deliverables.
3: I, yeah, that's, it's a really, I hadn't thought about that because I've been in such non-traditional and creative fields (laughs) that the line of what's professional is different than like when I was doing marketing. Um, And it's, and it's interesting because I, you know, I had this discussion with other people about like, where are those lines and like, how friendly are you and how, how open are you? And, you know, I have a sister who's a a therapist and I am definitely not a therapist, but I, talk a lot with my writers and there is some crossover in the things that we do. And obviously I've studied a lot of psychology to be able to, to mentor people as well as I can. Um, But I remember getting into arguments with her about the level of professionalism between you know, myself and my writers and what she has between her and her clients. And she was pushing so hard for me to be like, she's like, no, like that's totally appropriate. Like they shouldn't know anything about you, you know, in this hard line. And I just found that it was nearly impossible for me to ask someone to be vulnerable and open up without sort of demonstrating that level of vulnerability Mm, first. And it's something that I've been aware of for the past few years of just trying to discover for myself, like how much is vulnerability and holding space to enable them to do what they do until it crosses over into two people that are friendly, just having a conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I don't know if anyone else struggles with that, but if people do, it's real. I,
2: we all kind of need different things to feel comfortable and, and effective at work. But I, I think you're right. It's, To a point, it's good to get to know everyone, but there is a line of what's appropriate and what are the boundaries for a professional environment. It also can work against you if you become like best friends with everyone on your team. At the end of the day, they do work for you and they are your employees. So there is a level of of caring and understanding who they are, but not to the point where they become your friends and maybe you're, you're not as effective as a leader because it might soften you or it might make you think that I can't give them the direct feedback that they need to improve or to grow because I'm afraid of hurting now my friend's feelings or something. So I think as a leader, there is that delicate line that you, Mm -hmm. that you kind of spoke to and every company and every culture kind of understands what that might be. Or every leader might understand what that is. And then some people might take advantage of that. Some of your employees might respect and appreciate that you want to get to know them and others might take advantage of you and say, Hey, I'm running late today or Hey, I miss this project because of X, Y, Z, but cause I've opened up to you and told you this thing about my personal life. And then some leaders might feel like they're being taken advantage of. So yeah, yeah there is a line with every industry and every team, I think. Yeah.
3: With that respect. I, I think in that, it's one of the reasons why I've avoided ever hiring any of my friends yeah. because I'm like, it. as a yeah. friend, I am like the most loyal non-judgmental open when i'm in my friend hat when i'm wearing my friend hat i am so lovely when i'm wearing my teacher hat i'm the most compassionate non-judgmental person in the world when i'm wearing my manager hat you know i'm extraordinarily direct and stoic and it just it's like a different part of my personality comes out and i'm like it's really hard for me to wear a manager hat and a friend hat at the same time because they're completely it feels like they're contradicting parts of my personality. Mm-hmm.
2: Some people have different styles. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in in assessments. I'm a big believer in measuring your team. One, it gives your team self-awareness. And all of us need a healthy dose of self-awareness, personally and professionally. Once a team member understands what their preferences and behaviors are and the way in which they like to work, it's empowering for them to know how they show up, but it's incredibly empowering for the leader to then know who they're working with. And what are the ways in which I can get through to that person? So there's no one way to lead. And the best leaders have the agility to say, all right, I have someone on my team who's a driver. They are someone who's about getting the results done. They want to move quickly. They're less interested in the emotion of a project or the circumstance or about the result. So how do I speak to them in a way that engages them and inspires them? But then I have another team member who's much more maybe amiable or more uh, emotional in terms of the way they like to work, they want to feel close and connected and have more of a relationship with me. A strong leader can pivot depending on the team member where they know how to speak to each person effectively to get the result. And, and ultimately those are the highest performing teams Mm is one. Let's all get some self-awareness. You can learn about me as a leader. I'll tell you, you tell me about you as a, as an employee and then together we'll figure out the best way to work together. And those teams tend to be the highest performing.
3: I love, I mean, I'm a huge fan of meeting people where they're at. And I think when you are the person in charge or you're the leader, or you're the mentor, or you're the person who has the status or the power in the situation, I think it is your responsibility to adapt and a change to, you know, the way that people, the, the people who are not of status in that sit- the higher power status. And, you know, I, I try to do that for each of my writers and I've had so many uh, leaders in previous jobs who just expected everyone to change and adapt to the way that they did things. And I always thought Mm. that was backwards. I was like, wait a minute, you're the one with more experience. You're the one with all the power here. You're the one that's like, you know, sitting up here and watching us running around in this rat maze. Like, wouldn't it be easier and more effective for you to adjust yourself slightly to each of us while you're mentoring us up through the system? And, you know, I don't think I've ever actually had, a a leader in a job who did that. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why I had to start my own company.
2: <laughs> yeah, Well, I think that's what happens to a lot of people is they, they uh, most people know what a bad leader looks like and what a bad manager feels and looks like. And it can inspire them when they get to that point in their own career to do things differently. And it sounds like that's part of what inspired you to go off on your own and, and also just do things differently. Okay, like, hey, I've taken in all these good and bad experiences we can usually point to a bad manager more quickly than we can point to a really great leader and someone that's maybe inspired us. But the ones that do, it's like a great teacher growing up. You never forget the ones that really Mm -hmm. connected with you Mm -hmm. because they figured out a way to talk to you to bring out who and what is authentically you. Mm -hmm. And that is a gift that a great leader has is they know how to tap into your potential and help Mm -hmm. you see things that you didn't think you were able to accomplish and suddenly you're achieving and working at a level that you never thought possible.
3: Yeah, I think that's what a great leader really does is that when they can tap into part of a person that was being underutilized or that other people couldn't see and 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 creates a safe space for that to come out. Um, you know, it's so interesting. I was speaking to someone uh, about a week and a half ago about... Um, Bad leaders, <laughs> yeah, and and but I think it's really it. I think it's a great topic to bring up because this person was leaving a very very toxic work environment, and it was very upsetting to her um, because there was she was so conflicted about how she felt about leaving um, this job because there was she was there for a very long time and so she had built a personal relationship and this feeling of mentorship with um, her manager but it was definitely a psychologically unsafe environment. And this manager was very manipulative and, you know, I was just trying to help her through it. And, and what we realized is that there was just so many tactics that, that person used that seemed very similar to when we were watching like documentaries of people leaving mm. cults.
1: Yeah.
3: Um. And it was so weird. We just started watching all these documentaries because both of us had worked with this person in the past and we were like, mm. Oh my God. They did that and they did yeah. that and they did that. And this idea of some leaders using manipulation mm. um, rather than leadership. Um, and because it can be very effective, and how sometimes when you leave an abusive work relationship, it is common to feel guilt or shame mm. or to question, like, why did I allow myself, myself to stay in a toxic work environment for so long? And I just think it's a really complicated relationship. And I think especially women, um, you know, I, I've just talked to a lot of women who are like really strong, smart, independent women who have told me stories about staying in not good work environments with abusive bosses and just, I'm just being like, why, like what did they
2: ever get to that reason for them? Could they ever point to it? Maybe in hindsight, looking back?
3: Um, the the women it's interesting usually it's a pattern and that's one thing that i have found is that most of the women i talked to there was this realization of going back to i know for me like i have a complicated relationship with my family and so some of those (laughs) start very young um but one of my yeah i i think for the couple women i've talked to they're just like actually you know it i don't think it started with that relationship i think it started with my first boss mm. who did this or so i think it started with like a relationship that i had with a romantic partner 10 years yeah. ago and that there's a certain level of familiarity that yeah. you know if you once had a good experience with someone you know even though it was abusive you know, it's like the the first experience we have with anything creates the neural pathways and that, oh, this is familiar. And I can tell you my first real job, like full time job, I had a horrific leader, a very bad boss who was not running the company very well. And so I think that that became normal to me. I was like, oh, it's normal for your boss to tell stories about going to Mexico and doing really illegal Things And it's normal for the vice president of the company to come in drunk halfway through the day and tell you that no one cares what you think, Jessica, because that's <laughs> actually something that at my first job, this guy would just be like, nobody cares what you think.
2: Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, that's abusive. That's hard, and yeah. so.
3: So, yeah, so that to me, I was like, oh, this is working in New York. I was like, this is what it's like to be yeah. in marketing. In yeah. and, and I think that that opened up the doorway for me that later on I was not there are many red flags that probably other people might've been like, Oh, that's not a good work environment or that's not good leadership that to me, you know, because I was getting attention or because someone was like, Oh, you're, you know, like it, I was just the combination of compliments, manipulation. And, uh, my first work experience is being not that great. You know, it might've taken me a little bit longer than most people to, to realize that some of the work environments I've been in have not been healthy
2: yeah uh, you, you might you might pick a company for the same reason you pick a partner in adulthood. You could be recreating your childhood. Mm. you could be a reaction to what you didn't get as a child. I do think it gets a little bit bigger around you and you pointed to something else I think that's important is you don't want to change jobs constantly, but it's important to also diversify your your professional experiences to understand how different environments and industries mm. might run or operate. Yeah if you've been in one area for a really long time, mm. There's comfort in that, but it then also could normalize things that maybe aren't normal the same way that you mm-hmm. might as a child think your family's normal until you get out there a little bit. And you're like, wow, OK, there's a lot that my family did that maybe wasn't so <laughs> normal or yeah. it's or at, at at the minimum, I'm seeing other ways of doing things that could be equally or more effective. And then you kind of get a sense the same way you might with dating or being in relationships what you like and don't like in partners and what's comfortable and inbounds and out of bounds with someone that you're dating or in a relationship with, you are kind of dating your company in a mm-hmm. way, yeah. and you're going to maybe have some swings and misses along the way until you say, this is the kind of place that I thrive in. And then when you go out and interview, the longer you're in your career, the more you're interviewing the company as much as they're interviewing you. And mm-hmm. that's a really interesting kind of shift is, we see more and more people are interviewing that company to make sure that their values and what they stand for and what they care about are in line with me. And it's not just, Oh, please hire me, but what's your deal? You know, like, Mm -hmm. what are you guys about? What do you care about? And more and more, I think um, candidates are feeling empowered to ask those questions. I just want to say also, uh, it seems like uh, studying
1: comedy has been uh, one of the areas that you mentioned helped you with your leadership development so, can you talk a little bit about how, like, your years in comedy, doing sketch writing, all these kinds of stuff, maybe give you some insights into human behavior or human I, development, or what, what kinds of ways did that form pathways in your own uh, career?
2: I do think it's probably something that's innate in me from the very beginning. I love to even though I might sound super serious on, yeah. on the, in this conversation, yeah. like this guy's funny. Yeah. Uh, I hope so. Um, but it's, I do have passion for this subject. So I probably put on my yeah. business voice, but, um, comedy has been a way for me to probably, if I'm being transparent, I gain comfort with people. I gain their acceptance of me by being able to make people laugh. Yeah. It can become, I don't want to say a meal ticket, but it it's it helps me socially make friends, gain acceptance maybe from more difficult personalities that I wasn't sure how to navigate. but if I can cut the room with a with a one liner, suddenly it yeah. it helps one bring everyone together, break tension, et cetera. and then through the years, like anything, you get more and more skilled in it. but I also just have a passion for it that's just unending and I've tried all kinds of comedy from stand up and sketch and improv acting, etc. And what I think it is below just making people laugh is a deep interest in sort of the human condition. And I have what I would call the comedy brain where someone might walk into a room and be like, oh, the walls are yellow and there's people over there. And, oh, look, refreshments. I'm looking at it all completely differently. I'm I'm not necessarily sizing everyone up, but I'm looking for the funny or unusual, or unusual thing in every place I'm in, whether it be the subway ride on the way here, you know, at the bodega in a, in a company uh, meeting or something like that. And from that, you start to learn, God, people, while we're all very unique, there are repeatable and predictable styles of behavior. And from that, you, you can see in a, in a life context, but also in a business context, where those things show up, what are the triggers of those people? What makes them uncomfortable, comfortable, engaged, disengaged. And I found that by writing character sketches or working on scripts or doing the things that I do creatively or comedically I'm often writing in these business situations that I've seen in my professional life because the two are not not just interchangeable but it's your human your behavior in your personal life shows up in your professional life so as I'm writing and thinking about these New York city is just rife with interesting characters. Yeah. Those same characters show up in the boardroom or the conference room. And that I would say is informed not only the material I write, but a deeper understanding of what people bring into that status meeting based on maybe what was going on Saturday night or on the subway.
1: Yeah. Can you give an example of, uh, some uh, environment that people perhaps people that you've encountered that you've done something like this? Can you give me an example of that or,
2: You mean in terms of like writing material
1: or in terms of like an environment where you found the odd or unusual thing and then uh, we're able to use that for a, uh, to expose the mechanism behind the environment or. That's a good question. Yeah. Maybe on your way over here or anything that came up (laughs) to you. I don't know. Anything came up to you? Anything that was kind of catching your eye? Uh, It seems like the the lens seems to be always on. So, yeah. um, Oh gosh.
2: Let me think. Let me think. For well, a even second. in
1: this this environment, try to take, your, take a critical look in this studio. Anything
2: you find that
1: kind of gives you maybe a little insight into. Uh, well, I
2: think the people's voices are always very interesting to me. Yeah. Um. So I'm a big podcast fan. And I think there is this podcast voice that I've come to pick up on <laughs> yeah. that. Um. I don't know
3: what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. It's that soft.
2: And I'm not saying this is an original premise by any means. Yeah but I've become obsessed with the daily and Michael Barbaro's voice. I mean, did he teach himself to talk that way? (laughs) It is so cool and weird. And all my friends have Uh, a Michael Barbaro imitation that they say, like, let's meet up and just do our Barbaro and see who's closest. Cause it's just this odd sort of way that he clips the end of words or will accelerate and slow down to get through a sentence. And I think that the, the, the cadence and the style of talk, maybe it's just radio. And then, um, There's a corporate voice and I think I didn't talk like this 10 years ago, so I can even make fun of myself and that I've noticed the way that we love to poke fun at corporate language and the way that we use these terms like thinking outside the box or let's take this offline. And and it's a it's a it's a common comedic premise, but I find it to be like legalese for business people who don't know what they're talking about or often are <laughs> full of shit they can just sort of hide behind yeah. certain speak like let's put that in the parking lot aka <laughs> i don't know the answer to that so i'm going to buy myself time by by couching this for later on in the meeting so i kind of see the way in which we talk at parties and use excuses to maybe either sound important sound smart and then seeing that show up in business using kind of that corporate speak has been it's fun to kind of poke at those things and when i'm writing sketches i I love to go into the nitty-gritty of just how people kind of are full of shit sometimes and it's fun to call that out in a a humorous not mean but a humorous way
1: yeah you're also mentioning uh transcendental meditation you started uh, yeah getting into that helped inform this so it's kind of the balancing act between going uh deeper in inner work and also kind of finding the humor and you know how do you balance those two things and and because we think of transcendental meditation or meditation in general as being kind of the, the serious inner work but you know, having a play
2: and such in it and all this kind of stuff. So I would say that it probably, um, I I've learned over the years that the way that we work externally and show up each day is of course, based on who we are, our mindset and our behaviors. And, That's the thing that we have control over. You can't control often maybe company culture or you're more of a junior and entry level person. So the, the workflow or the team construct to your earlier question on how do you break through with your boss and make a suggestion, it can be challenging or intimidating because you don't want to get fired. You don't want to come off as difficult, but the work you can control is the stuff kind of between your ears. So it sort of led me into looking at, I have a natural interest in like self-improvement and you know, my friends make fun of me like how many self-improvement books do you have? And I said, you know, when I got out of college, it was the first time when I didn't really know what the next step was. So I started to read around Well, what's getting in my way and what's, what's maybe blocking my potential. So you read books on fear, anxiety, um, and just a number of things like that. And then you notice how important and critical those very same things are in in companies in the way in which people work and show up. And then Ultimately, it led me to meditation because I do have anxiety, and it is something that has probably made me back off of things that I thought would maybe help me get to the next level personally and professionally. So with transcendental meditation, I'm only a couple of months in, but I read... Bob Ross book on it called strength and stillness. And I loved how it was data and research based because it has this, it's a cult sort of reputation (laughs) or all these celebrities do it, but this isn't Scientology that we're talking about. There's no manipulation with it because it's an individualized activity that you do on your own. Once you learn the technique, there's no one bothering you. There's no leader. It's just something you can do for yourself to kind of transcend and get to that level Mm -hmm. of consciousness where, Ultimately, you are processing and releasing stress and anxiety when you do this twice a day for 20 minutes. And I'm not going to say that two months in, I'm this new person, but I do feel slowly it's opening a lot of things up for me. It's helping me keep things in perspective and it's helping me balance things more that it's changing how maybe I show up or how I approach things. I'm a big believer in optimism is the first step. If you if you are optimistic, you are then open to possibility. You're able to identify opportunities when they show up and you're more likely to see them through. And I love that concept because it eliminates luck and magic and it makes it more about, <laughs> no, I'm putting in the work to show up a particular way. And those are the people that you're like, why does that person seem to be quote unquote winning all the time? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because they either are naturally an optimistic person based on how they were raised or they've put the time in to look at their blessings, what they're what they're grateful for and find the possibility in every situation. When you're open to possibility, the way that you might be open to love, suddenly those things open up for you and, and you're starting to yeah. see, God, this led to that and this led to that. And now I'm like totally different than I was five years ago. Yeah. And that's kind of where I think it starts between the ears and, and why I'm kind of going inward more and more to do that work. To then show up differently externally. Yeah. yeah, it
1: seems like the law of attraction. It's like what you're talking about is that you know we when we recognize and own what's inside of us, we realize that we're attracting the things naturally. That um, this seems to be the conversation flow that we're attracting things that have come in the past and that we have more control over what we're attracting by owning and understanding and taking a perspective of what's going on inside of us. Then we'll attract things we want. Really. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's it's. I couldn't agree more. And I'm, I, this is a journey. I think everything in life, even getting back to leadership, is this journey. And mm. it might be cliche or corny to be like, I'm on a journey. Yeah. But yeah. life is a journey. And it goes back to mindset. Or I think one thing we were talking about earlier was, growth versus fixed mindset. If you have this growth mindset, which I'm still not only getting my head around, but embracing this more and more, because sometimes the things that matter to you most in life, you're more fixed on, which means you're a little bit afraid to take those steps and just embrace failure and embrace that Mm -hmm. this will be something I'm going to be working on and pushing my entire life. And it's not I'm going to do this one thing and get an answer on it, whether I am or am not something. But in fact, this is a, a journey. And the people that you look up to in life are the ones that said, I've failed a hundred times or like the top comedians are said I've bombed a hundred times on stage, if not more, but I keep going. And f- and by embracing the long view, you can really achieve something tremendous. Yeah. It seems, and yeah, so, it
1: seems to me that, uh, you know, a leader and everyone on a team you have to, leader should be, uh, comfortable being vulnerable, like not knowing if they don't know something, not pretending like mm. they know something. This is something that's I've heard a lot that they should be like, Oh, but I'll, well, I'll look it up. I'll find out or whatever. But that curiosity and encouraging their team members to feel like they're comfortable in being vulnerable and feeling and not feeling like that's a weakness and stuff like that. So that's something that vulnerability is very important to be able to acknowledge and understand each other's having a trust, that foundation of trust that they can, you know, rely on the leader to catch them when they're when they're uh, in that vulnerable space. Yeah. Yeah. The, oh, yeah.
3: It's, sorry. <laughs> I was just coughing into the yeah. mic. No, it's just so interesting bringing it around to like meditation and meditation and leadership and, and anxiety. And cause I was just realizing <clears throat> that, you know, meditation is something that you practice. It's something that you have to meet every single day mm. and some days it's easier. Some days it's harder. Um, and you know, as someone who's on like, seven years of, of a really, really intense practice where I used to be on like three different types of anxiety medication that I no longer need to be on because I'm able to manage my anxiety. Not everyone can, but like I'm able to do it through my meditation practice, but also the way that even leadership, I don't think it's a fixed thing. I think a lot of our suffering comes from the assumption that once we get to a place, we stay there and this attempt to cling to, uh, states of being, um, when really it's just like, we're, we're a river, we're water, we're constantly moving. So like you can be, you can be a great leader one day and the next day you can fall flat on your face and and not be a great leader. And it's not that you're a, a good leader or a bad leader. It's that you, if you practice the, the, the things that allow you to become a great leader every single day, you know, but it, but not getting obsessed with this, like, or getting this ego about I'm at this place or not, you know, of just saying like today I practice being a good leader. You know, and know that it is constantly fluctuating the way that when you do meditate daily, you realize how different mm-hmm. your mind is this morning than it was yesterday. And just being able to meet yourself where you're at um, is I encourage everyone to get involved. Yeah. With, and there's so many different forms of meditation Absolutely. that if TM is not yeah. for you you know, if Zen sitting meditations off you, there's walking meditations. Mm -hmm. I do my writing meditations. There's eating meditations. Um, but if you are someone who is maybe thinking about getting into meditation and worried that like, you're like, Oh, I can't sit for that long. There's so many different forms of meditation and just getting really curious and finding one that works really well for you and what your goals are.
2: I agree. I, I think if I were to give it a word, it's about processing. Yeah. We store things inside of us. Like, I kind of am more of someone who represses things and kind sort of pushes things down rather than facing them. And I think that meditation, whether it be uh, to your point, if it's mindfulness, if it's guided meditation, if it's just breathing, I think writing is incredibly therapeutic in that respect. Where, like, um, a lot of comedy writers that I've looked up to have talked about morning pages. Wake up, you're fertile, you're you haven't been sort of poisoned, if you will, by the day and all the stress and stuff. Just dump your brain into a notebook for thirty minutes. Don't pick the pen off and don't type it, but do it manually with a pen. And that is has the therapeutic quality to it. But this idea of you're processing every day, but to connect this to sort of leadership is what's more powerful than a leader who's who's confident enough to show his his or her team when they're maybe wrong or when they failed, and then giving your team the permission to do the same thing rather than having a perfectionist complex that can kind of make everyone really stressed, like, well, my leader's perfect, so I can't fail. Yeah. But if the leader yeah. can show you that they have and do and will continue to do it under this whole idea of a journey, it's very liberating. I yeah. think
3: the most effective lecture I ever gave was the first time I ever talked about um, the first time I was fired off of a screenwriting project.
2: Um, oh, tell us <laughs> here we go <laughs> where,
3: where i was I was so scared, you know, I was like, so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm finally a professional writer, like the goal that I had for myself since the age of twelve years old, the only thing I cared about I didn't care. I never pretended to have a, a wedding, I didn't care about love or relationships. I just had to become a professional writer, and then I finally got to be a professional writer, and um. I just remember the that they, I mean, they don't really fire you to your face. They, you just yeah. suddenly find out someone else is writing the next draft of the <laughs> script. It's like, it's like the most, oh, that's so it's, painful. So, it's like professional ghosting. And then yeah. you see their Instagram account and they're with someone else and you're like, oh, <laughs> oh and yeah. I remember how I, I mean, at first I was just like, oh my God, I, I, I am I a terrible writer? And I started the voices came to my head and I was like, Oh my God, I've lost. And I was so sad. And then I, I was talking to some of my friends who were, a lot of them were professional writers before me. And they were like, they're like, Oh no, 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 no. Oh, they fired you because you wouldn't change the race of one of the couples in your script. They're like, no, 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 no. I once had this producer. I got fired this way. And everyone started telling their stories. And I realized that you're not a professional writer until you've been fired from (laughs) your first gig. And that, that was the first time I felt like I had connection with people and that I belonged. I never felt like I belonged in that community actually until I had gotten fired. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. But you, you also point to something super important, which is sharing communication and feedback in this, um this idea of you think a particular way because there's some voice in your head that's telling you you're not a good writer or you got fired and no one gets fired in this business, but by maybe sharing that or expressing that with people who are also writers like no no no, i've been fired a lot for these reasons (laughs) one it makes you feel normal and okay but two, it it reminds you that even the people you look up to most have had these very similar experiences and that's why podcasts to me have been so incredible is everyone i look up to at some time is, is on a podcast somewhere comedians actors writers leaders and you hear their stories and you're like, God, that finally sounds like me or, okay, so they were where I'm at at some point. Mm-hmm. And it normalizes it in a way. And I think in a team construct, that's why this idea of feedback and sharing, yes, you may end up feeling more human and connected. But at the same time, you're just processing the same way you do with meditation or after you run six miles, you just feel so good or something, or one mile, whatever we're capable of. I know (laughs) you're like six miles. I'm like a half a mile. I'm working on that. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. just getting the mail, whatever it takes. Um, But um, that idea of sharing connection and processing, it might sound to some a little hokey, but it's so important. We all have those people we talk to, but creating that in your professional world and also then in your personal, it just like, all right, I'm not alone.
1: Yeah, it seems like uh, our mind is always giving meaning to things based on our presumptions or yeah. assumptions. So uh, this kind of meaning-making machine we have. And uh, when we become aware of where that's coming from, then we begin to realize, you know, we own the meanings and, and be able to guide the meanings and have more healthy or fruitful meanings that we're giving things rather than just yeah. generating this random meanings based on our past traumas or past experiences. We're not just doing randomly. We're doing it with mindfulness and with intentionality. Yeah. I think that's
2: why we're innately social creatures. It's like I live I live by myself. And if I'm alone in my apartment for more than a day, it's, I am very analytical. My mind's always running and spinning. And it's like, I got to get the heck out of here and just go talk to other people. Just go be somewhere. That's why I love New York City so much is you go into the city and you feel sort of like it can, sure, it can be a tough place, but it kind of wraps your arms around you a little bit. There's energy, there's people around you can go sit in a bar go meet your friends or something and suddenly you just sort of realize that um what you were thinking is not that big of a deal it gives you some perspective to go out and just talk so if you're like sitting home alone and freaking out about something you're up late at night freaking out about something find a way to take your voice and give it something else to think about has saved me on many sleepless nights
1: so as we start to wind down i just want to say ready for brooklyn you're listening to ready for brooklyn uh the truth to power show which airs every monday at 8 a.m uh, Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely permanently on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation, a monthly pledge at readyforbrooklynorg slash donate. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford, all contributions are tax deductible to the folks' sense law. Again, it's readyforbrooklynorg slash donate. You can also go to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash truth to power um, to sponsor this show particularly in particular uh, and get, donate to help us continue to stay on air. Uh, you can find you can if you listen to us on the computer, you can um, free yourself up by going to the apps by downloading them at radioforfreebrooklyn.org slash iPhone or radiofreebrooklyn.org slash Android. Um, and to find, keep up with news, uh, please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org Slash newsletter. So, um, any last licks, Any last uh, comments before we? Any uh, or how? How can, how can people find out more about you or your um, uh, leadership training?
2: Well, um, I am on Twitter at at actually at d a v o i c e o m. You can look my name up, Jacques Duvoisin. Um, and it's not that I'm tweeting a lot about leadership, but if you want to get in touch with me or through yeah. through LinkedIn. Because um, I, I, whether I'd be working with an organization or independently, I do a lot of coaching and, and one-on-one. So I'll assess you and then help you understand what the results are saying about you and how you can apply this to an action or a development plan. And while that might sound procedural, it really does work. So when asking me if I have anything that I would leave everyone with is to not become, not think that you need to become a leader that you either have seen on TV or you've read in a book but truly become an authentic leader that is yourself and accesses your strengths. So first and foremost, get the information, understand who I am. What am I innately most interested in? What are my talents? What are the things that come most naturally to me? Focus on developing those. I'm a big believer in a strengths-based approach to professionalism and to leadership because then you'll show up in an authentic way. And from that, everyone will will ultimately win by your performance being improved, but then you're creating permission for everyone around you to do the same thing. So be an authentic leader, figure out what your style is and continue to develop that and recognize that leadership is a lifelong journey.
1: Great,
3: great. Awesome. And if anyone is interested in the intersection between meditation and neuroscience and creative writing, I highly encourage you to go to meditativewriting.org. I've got a lot of free um, articles and information. And if you want to ask me about the other five times I've been fired for being too disgusting <laughs> in a script, you can find me on Instagram at meditative underscore writing.
1: Thank you. Thank you. We're going out with uh, Matthew and the Atlas. Um that uh jock was able to um uh recommend so please enjoy and uh tune in next time next week at 8 a.m mondays thank Thank you. you yeah thanks thank you